When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, welcome, Books of the Year. It's our Q&A bonus episode uh, where we take uh, an author through our rigorous but formally set out questions. David McCloskey's book is Damascus Station. You can hear us uh, talking about that, precisely where you got this podcast from. But these these are the Q&A. David, it's now uh, quarter past seven in the morning. You're uh, in Texas, so you're on to your eighth coffee. So let's, <laughs> let's get on with this. You're not far off. No, okay. You're not far off. All right. So question number one, what is the last book that you really, really enjoyed reading? Okay, that's, that's an easy one, because it's the one that I just finished a few days ago. Um, Michael Chabon, The Yiddish Policeman's Union. It is a highly ambitious novel. So he he got the Pulitzer, I believe, for writing yeah. a book called The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. And The Yiddish Policeman's Union is so, one part kind of crime noir, um, one part speculative history. It essentially follows the adventures of a um a, a Jewish investigator in Alaska and the whole premise of the book is that rather than you know rather than the Jewish homeland having been established in Israel Palestine after the war it, it was established in Alaska and so so the whole kind of state of Israel is is you know up in up in Alaska and it it sounds uh like an insane book and in some respects it is, but it is a beautifully written crime story, but also this kind of 
exploration of alienation and loss and identity and I just thoroughly, yeah. thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I, I read that years because that's not a new book, is it? That came out a while back. But it's, no, no, it's not new. I don't, I don't know when it came out, but it's, it's definitely not that's new. The, but yeah. as, as an idea, that's the most adventurous idea for a, for a crime novel. <laughs> uh, I think. Okay, so that's Michael Chabon's uh, the Yiddish Policeman's Union. Uh, where do you enjoy writing the the most, David? And is there a specific time of day? I mean, we can see in the in the background behind you, uh, drawn curtains and a very dark room. It's, it seems perfect for talking to a former CIA man, to be honest. Um, That's but right. Is, is it where you're sat now? Is that where you would do the bulk of your writing? No, I do almost all. Of, so I'm in. I'm actually in my bedroom right now. I've got three children under the age of seven, and so they're out getting breakfast in the main area. I do almost all of my writing at coffee shops, and it's very loud. And I, for whatever reason, find that to really work for me. So I, I sit at the same coffee shop pretty much every day. I get the same thing. I sit down at the same time. That's where I do almost all my work. There's one exception, which is one week a year as I'm pushing toward the final, really the final third of a book, I'll disappear and go to a house um, in a town outside Marfa here in Southern Texas near the Mexican border. And I'll sit there for a week and finish the book. And that's that's probably my happy place because I, I'll write for about 16, 17 hours a day for four days straight until it's done and just comes out. But it's it's either that or the coffee shop, one of the, one of those two. That is amazing. I don't think we've what? ever had anyone answer the, as the coffee shop before. That is amazing. 16 to 17 hours a day? What? <laughs> this is incredibly depressing. <laughs> I love it. It's it's the one of my best weeks of the year. I get up at 5.30 and I start writing and I, I don't, I don't end until the, you know, the evening of, of that day. I just, I get into a zone. Um, it's important that you do it at the right part in the book, because if you do it too early, you're going to end up writing a whole bunch of stuff. I, at least for me, I don't keep. But if I do it toward the back third, I, I'll, I'll finish. I'll usually get about 40 to 45,000 words done in about three and a half or four days. Well, I'm I'm already fed up with speaking to you because uh, that's just that's exactly not what I want to hear. I'm going to change this next question to something else based because of what you just said. When uh, we spoke to Lee Child uh, on this podcast a number of times, he famously basically lives off coffee and dope. Yeah. And, and and he kind of doesn't eat anything uh, at all. But he, but he has a phenomenal coffee intake. I can't yeah, remember yeah. quite it's how many. Ridiculous. It's like uh, it's in the teens. There's twenty of... pots yeah, of yeah, coffee. Yeah. You know, he, <laughs> you know, he starts with a brand new document in a laptop that's only got one document, and he just and he and he just drinks coffee. So based on that discipline, which you have just described, which is superhuman, unreal, and so on, what sustains you then when you're going through one of those amazing superhuman writing efforts? So it's it actually is a very specific um, diet for that week. So it's it's probably eight to ten cups of coffee a day, something like that, like just const constantly. Uh, it's a lot of mineral water. There's a brand called Topo Chico that's found in the kind of the southwestern United States that I really enjoy. So I have that. I have eggs and sausage and salsa in the morning. I have salami and cheese like just a few bites of it for lunch to give me something i usually have some peanuts in the afternoon and then what typically happens is i'm i'm pretty hungry by the end of the day so i'll get to this hotel in town that stays open until about midnight 
I'll get there at sometime around 11 and I eat an entire pepperoni pizza and I have one scotch and then I go back and go to bed and I do it all over again in the morning. Wow. The, the menu of champions. I was going to say. You've heard it. it anyway. Works I'm a little less daunted now yeah. with a pepperoni pizza and whiskey. <laughs> Goodness me. Um, when, 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 David, did you, did you last visit a library? Uh, about five days ago. Six days ago. Is, like and is that for work or, or what? Why, why would you be for, at the library? It, well, two, I guess it could be one of two reasons. Work, so books for research or children's books to read to my kids. It, those are the two, the two things I go for. Yeah. When you're reading to your children, do you do all the voices? That's not my question. <laughs> Some, sometimes, sometimes. It, uh, it maybe depends a little bit on, on how many gin and tonics I've had that evening, oh. whether I get too carried away with the voices. But I do try to read out loud to them every night and uh, have found it you know, to be a lot of fun to kind of get them excited about story too. So I, I generally try to do the voices, make it, make it feel fun. Now, on the cover uh, of the book, uh, Matt mentioned in our uh, previous podcast the quote from General David Petraeus. There's also a quote from uh, a top historian and author, Simon Seabag Montefiore, who says, breathlessly, breathlessly gripping and truly terrifying. He's also sent us a question in the form of a voice note, uh, and he's a fan of yours. So here's the question from Simon Seabag Montefiore. Hi, David. This is Simon Seabag Montefiore. I just love the book. I think it's the best spy thriller of the year. And I'd like to know, were the cases of... Uh, CIA agents having affairs with Syrian agents on the ground uh, in Syria or in other parts of the Arab world, what would happen to them if they did? There you go. So that's a great question. And the reality is that they would be pretty much terminated immediately from employment with the Central Intelligence Agency, which doesn't make my, you know, doesn't really improve my novel. And so I decided to change things a little bit uh, in the book, of course, but you know the reality of that. Even though it's again, it's pretty common in spy fiction to have a relationship between handler and asset inside CIA. That is, that I mean, it is essentially the you know a cardinal sin. Like you're you're gone, um, and re the the reason for that is because well, it's really a couple reasons. One is it's a tremendous lapse in judgment and really all CIA has, and I think I have some characters, Proctor says it in the book, you know, all, all she has at the end is, is, is their judgment, right? And, and whether she can trust them, um, you know, and then the other thing is you can't trust anything that that's coming out of that asset's mouth if, if the handler is romantically involved with them, you know, there's this balance of um, needing to have that intimacy and trust with the asset, but also the ability to, to handle them, to control them in some respects, in order to understand if the information that they're providing is is accurate, and and if the handler is sort of you know foggy because they're in love with the asset or in lust with the asset, you can never trust it, and so it's really a it's really the kind of thing that gets you gets you pushed out immediately and really without without much uh, pomp and circumstance. Um, David, you mentioned in the in the previous podcast that you were recruited to the CIA when you were still an undergrad. So I, the, the question I'd like to ask is what path, in that sort of parallel universe where you didn't get recruited by the CIA, what would David McCluskey be doing now? What, what Were you always wanting to be in the CIA or were you actually heading somewhere else when you were recruited? Yeah, that's a good 
that's a good question. It's actually hard for me to even remember back to that time because it was, you know, I, I it was middle of undergrad and all of my thoughts about what I wanted to do were just forming. Um, I will say, though, that something that I wanted to do, and it's been kind of fun to see that even though it's not precisely the same, that I, it, I'm kind of moving or have moved to something similar is I wanted to be a screenwriter. And I had that thought as kind of a, I wasn't doing a whole lot to make it happen, obviously, but I had that thought of it would be really fun in kind of a fantasy world to do that. And then I went to the CIA and, you know, life became life. But that, if I were to identify something in that interim, you know, that period back in those misty days, that that would be it, screenwriter. So you're writing this, the, 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 the screenplay for Damascus Station then, yes? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, I am, uh, you know, it's funny, um, writing a 400-page novel seems less daunting to me than writing like a hundred page screenplay um because i just when i'm writing the novel i can kind of get in there and and i i am the one who's creating everything and because i've never written one my understanding is you know you're sort of creating the recipe for something that a a team of people will end up creating the cinematography the costume you know the actors the director the novel i can be all of that uh which i find easier in my head yeah. uh, than, than trying to write the screenplay, which seems more daunting. Do you have a favourite spy novel? Yes. The Little Drummer Girl uh, by John Le Carre. That is far and away my favourite. I read that uh, as a high schooler. I've reread it multiple times since. And I just love, I love how well he treats the relationship between Charlie and Gaddy Becker, this sort of handler asset relationship and I explored in my novel as well. I love that. And obviously looking at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Middle East roots there, I just find that book to be enchanting. I love it. Uh, you've mentioned, David, that you're you're writing your second novel right now. Is there anything that you've yeah. taken from your experience of writing the first one that you're putting into practice now? Any sort of little tips, any lessons that you learned from, from, re- from writing the first one? Well, I... <laughs> It's funny, I thought when I started the process on book two that it would be easier because, hey, I've already written one, you know, just get this production line going and it'll be it'll be 30% easier. Completely false. <laughs> I think that, you know, I would say the, the lessons have become more clear to me as I've started writing and in midstream in the third book. But for the second book... It was deeply painful, actually. I think that a lot of my lessons from, or, my, you know, the, the things that I thought I had learned on the first book, when I applied them to the second, didn't quite work. And there's a whole bunch of different reasons for that, I think. But the process was harder. It, it felt like there's a process, I, I kind of, I think of it in my mind as an archaeological dig. You're uncovering this thing. It already exists. But you're uncovering this thing, you know, and and you're sort of, you're having to, do really hard spade work at times and then other times there's fine kind of brushing and uh, for whatever reason on book two it's felt like I've had to do a lot more digging to get the thing out so the lessons have been few and far in between but I think uh, you know or the learning rather has been few and far in between between the two books but I think and I'm hopeful that you know just by continuing maybe that maybe as I'm talking the single biggest one is sometimes you just keep digging and keep working until you know the thing is as good as it can be. And if you stop at any point before that, or if you think there's any shortcut, that's completely false. Because I, I do, I, I've become to the kind of belief that 
especially when you're just creating something or facilitating this creative process from whole cloth, oftentimes you have to create like 20 versions of the thing or 10 versions of the thing to really understand what works. And if you try to shortcut that process, you'll end up with something that's that's not the full potential of what it could be. Final question, David McCloskey, bearing in mind, and the, the answer to this question will be yes or no, okay? That's it, just yes or no. <laughs> and I think the answer is going to be no. Just like a poly. This is just like a poly, <laughs> yes or no, yeah. That's perfect. I'm, uh, this is, I'm very comfortable okay, with this question. Okay, bearing in that. mind all the forms that you had to sign before you were allowed to leave the CIA, bearing in mind that you were a senior analyst, for the, for the CIA, given that you advised President Obama, would you be allowed to answer this question? Do you think President Obama should have stuck to his red lines? Can you answer that question, yes or no? Yes. Okay. Well, and <laughs> in which case, therefore, what is, what is the answer then? What is, <laughs> I do think he should have stuck to the red line. I think that the original sin of our Syria policy was this feeling or assessment on the part of a lot of people on his foreign policy team. And I don't envy the task that they had, but they just thought that Assad would fall. There was this sort of historical inevitability to it, given what was going on in the region. And as a result, you know, if you believe it's inevitable and we don't have to do anything, you end up in a world where your your military policy becomes divorced from your strategic communications and your rhetoric. Because you start to say things like, oh, he should step aside, or, you know, there's a red line on the use of chemical weapons. And you don't think that you'll actually have to do anything because Assad's demise is assured. And that was completely wrong. And so what happened was we ended up with a tremendous gap between our words and our actions and our ability to resource those actions. And I think that we just got completely over our skis and we ended up really creating a ton of confusion on the part of our you know, Syrian partners and on the part of our friends in the region about what we were actually going to do. That to me is a tremendous, that was a tremendous mistake. And I think that what we should have done, there's a sort of like, like I, I guess an, an idea that Somehow, if we enforce the red line, we had to invade Syria or is it? No, I think that we should have sent a strong message to the Assad regime that we weren't going to tolerate the use of those weapons because of what we'd said. And we could have done that with airstrikes. We could have done that with missiles. We could have done things to create, you know, consequences for those actions. And I think at minimum, we should have done that if for no other reason might not have affected the strategic balance of the war, but it would have made it clear that we actually stand by the the rhetoric that we espouse and we're willing to resource, you know, a policy that is in line with our rhetoric. And we should have at minimum done that. Uh, David McCloskey, fascinating to speak to you. Thank you very much indeed. I think the sun is probably up in Texas. It's time for you to <laughs> go and there. have a pizza and a scotch um, <laughs> or, or something like that. But a pleasure to speak to you. We look forward to speaking to you on, uh, on your next book. And thank you for your time, sir. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it, guys.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.